at his hometown and appears there to read in the synagogue. This was a custom that somebody was sometimes invited to, to read. This takes place right after the right after the temptations in the in the desert with the de- devil. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and he went to the synagogue as was his custom on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and there was given to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. He opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We picture him now holding that venerable scroll, that ancient scroll that no doubt had, uh, had a great tradition. And uh, he uses it now in their presence and he knows that these words were written in view of him were written by Isaiah and inspired by God so that Isaiah could write them thinking about him and there he is opening that ancient ancient scroll he might have picked it up with great reverence precisely because it was referring to him and as he said this is now taking place this is being fulfilled in your hearing what is being fulfilled The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord. It's a beautiful phrase. The fathers of the church see this verse as a reference to the three persons of the the Blessed Trinity. The Spirit, obviously the Holy Spirit, of the Lord, the Father, is upon me. The Son. It's like a revelation. Origen saw that as a revelation of the Blessed Trinity. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Holy Spirit dwelt in Christ's soul from the very moment of the Incarnation and descended visibly upon him in the form of a dove when he was baptized by John. And so Jesus is reading this passage of Isaiah, Isaiah 61, where the prophet is anointing the coming of the Lord, announcing rather the the coming of the Lord. And the Lord will free his people from their afflictions. And in Christ, this prophecy really finds its fulfillment. He is the anointed one. And, but we know as a result uh, that he was met with uh, hostility. Many fellow Nazarenes didn't believe Jesus to be that prophet. 
They couldn't imagine that he who was just reading this, this, this scroll now is actually the one that Isaiah himself is referring to. They're kind of like saying, like, well, this is where they, you know, they get hostile and uh, they want to throw him over the edge outside the city and they rose up against him. It must have been a very hostile moment. Who do you think you are kind of moment? They were saying, we decide who is and who isn't a prophet. We decide that. They didn't like the idea that somebody else was coming in there kind of... Um, sort of uh, setting their, their judgment aside. In some ways they were very superficial, they were narrow-minded, they had, they, in their, their pride they felt hurt that Jesus, their own fellow townsman, had not worked in Nazareth the wonders that, that he had done elsewhere. They kind of felt hurt by that and they, they presumed that they deserved a special entitlement um, and they were rather insolent in demanding miracles, but not ready for him to change their hearts. And uh, they would have thrown him off the cliff. It's as though they were ready to do that because he had been chosen by God without their permission. And um, it's as though they were saying, we like you to, per- to perform miracles, but we want you to do it here and do not try to lecture us. They must have been very closed. After all, you're only the the son of the uh, of the carpenter, the son of the artisan Joseph. How can you really have that that value? So they had already made their judgment. They prejudged him. They had already made their decision, and therefore they were hardened. And it was their sense of entitlement. Uh, and their pride, ultimately, maybe not everybody, but uh, a lot there had that pride. And so as we hear this passage, as our Lord humbly announces his role from Isaiah, we want to ask our Lord, uh, if in what way does pride actually worm its way into my life? And if there's, for example, any sense of entitlement in me, Because a a proud person demands, often demands special treatment because some way or another he considers himself different. He doesn't, rules don't apply to me in that sense and sort of, but not really. And they demand, they, they demand special treatment. And a proud person is vulnerable to being hurt. Vulnerable. It's when we say that we have to, when we're talking to him, when we're asking him things, can, correcting him, we have to walk on eggshells lest we say something that, that might offend them. And we are in a time now, you, you can't call anybody anything, or, you know, everybody's going to get offended, you know, if you, you call them this, call them that, kind of, you know, sorry if I offended you. And uh, there's this, there's, you know, what they call the snowflake generation. And it, it's probably... I'm sure it has something to do with pride, or at least that the virtue of humility has not been uh, sufficiently taught as a, as a great value. So we have to ask, uh, in, in the presence of God, am I in family life, am I easily approachable? Can I be asked anything? Can I be sort of uh, teased and uh, joked? Am I quick to serve? 
or just a simple thing like, am I profoundly interested in what others have to say? Or am I, am I always jockeying for a position or jockeying to get my ideas in there? You know, much of the time in the get-together, we don't have to say much. We can, we can, we can invite others to speak. Uh, or just, can others relax in my presence? Or do they have to be careful? Right? As, as soon as they, they take one step this way, that way, we already know and we give them a lecture on something. We know this, we, we know this or that, and we roll our eyes. Uh, that's what, the, that's what that, that author said, uh, that uh, the one sign between couples, he can tell that they're going to divorce or not. When he sees them after five minutes, one of the most... You know, he says 94% of the time, if he sees this, 94% of the time they, they will divorce. And says, it's the rolling of the eyes when they're talking, when they, one of them rolls the eye. Because it's such a sign of, well, disdain or, or um, uh, just, uh, you know, just contempt for the other person's idea, the rolling of the eyes. It's amazing how it just transmits that message. So we want to be truly humble. We want to be truly humble. We want people to, to be able to walk and say and do anything in family life, in, in, our, in our vocation. And of course, Eugene Boylan, in his famous book, That Tremendous Lover, which I think is probably one of the greatest titles I've heard in a book, right? This Tremendous Lover. Um, Sometimes I just suggested, and people just, I've, it's happened to me sometimes, have you read this tremendous book? And they said, wow, that sounds like an amazing book. And, uh, and, and he gives um, signs, or, or uh, how can I say, a quick recipe of how to become humble. He said, the first thing to do is, well, to ask for the grace of humility in prayer. Ask for it sincerely. So during a retreat, we must ask for it, because we all have to, in some way, grow in humility. None of us can say, well, I've struggled so many years, and I'm very happy that I now I'm, I've become humble, you know, and I don't have to ask anymore. As uh, Don Javier used to joke, right, with our father. Our father found it funny. So we have to ask. That's the first thing we have to do. We have to ask in prayer. Literally, if we could ask every day, Lord, make me humble. Make me react with humility and simplicity. The second thing is we have to accept the humiliations when they come our way. And we have to know the difference there. There's enormous difference between being humble and being humiliated. And we are humiliated when it is shown that we are, we're wrong, that we, when it is shown that we had this or that limit, limitation, and everybody, especially if everybody uh, knows it, to accept that. That's a, that, as soon as we accept it, there we, we've just gone one rung up in the ladder of humility. And then the next thing is to accept as lovingly as we can our own limitations. We all have limitations. We all have limited vision. We have defects. We have low, lowliness. And, um, I mean, we can't be glad about our defects, I suppose, but... We can accept our shortcomings, and especially if those shortcomings, those limitations can end up being known to others, when in some way others know them. Let's accept that. 
they know that we have this problem or that problem. We are, human beings are what they are, and it's not easy, but without confidence in, in, in God, it's really practically morally impossible to accept those things. Those are, those are three steps. Ask for it in prayer, uh, accept humiliations, and, and, and uh, well, accept our own, our own limitations. But we should know when was the last time I was humiliated, when, what is a limitation that I have not yet embraced or accepted, let's say. And um, that's why he, Eugene Boylan talks about uh, the, that vulnerability of, of being hurt, where our own evaluation about ourselves can lead to stress or to anxiety. He says, uh, one of the reasons why men are so anxious to exalt themselves, to overestimate their own value and their own powers, to resent anything that would tend to lower themselves in their own esteem or in that of others, is because they see no other hope for their own happiness save in themselves. They see no other hope for their happiness save in, their, in themselves. That is often why they are, or they are so, quote, touchy, so resentful of criticism, so impatient of opposition, so insistent on getting their own way, so, so eager to be known, so anxious for praise, so determined on ruling their surroundings. They clutch at themselves, he says, like drowning men clutch at a straw. They clutch to themselves as a drowning man clutches to a straw. You're trying to keep from drowning and all you have is a straw. You're not going to go very far. But a straw can maybe keep you afloat. I don't think it can keep you afloat. But I don't think so. It's not going to work. I still have a vivid memory. It's one of those images that you keep, just like the image of Don Alvaro. But he, as a child... Um, uh, there were sw swimming lessons in the uh, in the village, in the lake, and there was the pier, and there was the, you know a large lake there, and the water was very dark and below it was very deep, and uh, one of the boys had fallen off into the water and he couldn't swim at all. I mean, at all, at all, at all. And there was people back and forth, going back and forth, and it wasn't really noticed that he had fallen off until his friend came, and. He was literally right below the surface of the water, struggling, like panicking, but not, not able to get his head above the water because he didn't know how to swim. And his friend, calmly, who could swim, knelt on the dock and extended his hand like that, right above the water. And he called out to him. He said, grab my hand, grab my hand. But the guy was below the water, just going like that, just just flashing, flailing about, and in, incapable, probably even of hearing him. But this guy was calm, didn't jump into the water, just stood there, and everybody was like frozen watching this scene. And he just said, grab my hand, uh, whatever his name was, Billy, grab my hand, grab my hand. He said it several times, and then suddenly I still have this, this, this vision of this hand just, you know, 
it's just just flying out of the water and he grabbed the hand and he pulled him with one arm right back onto the dock and he must have been a 14 15 year old kid and and, uh, and he was fine he was fine but had he not grabbed his hand he would have still been underwater and right so we are sometimes clutching like drowning men clutching onto a straw, or, or like that drowning man tr- clutching onto this friend's hand. And as life goes on, he says, they are still far from being satisfied. Their attitude borders on the feverish and the hysterical. Whatever they may have got, they are certainly far from having found peace. It's a sign of, of humility then when we find peace. You know, we, we really like making a good impression. We really like receiving praise. But one sign of humility is that we, we know how to deal with praise and also that we know our place. We know our place. That we fight off, on the one hand, perfectionism and not, not be overly at the center of activities. Father Fred was telling us how with all the with the pandemic and so forth, a number of supernumeraries have given talks on, on Zoom or recorded themselves. And of course, they're not used to that. And so just to get a better sense if this was good or not, um, they would send their own talk uh, across the continent to, for feedback. But by that, they meant to somebody who doesn't really know them so that they could get honest feedback. If you want honest feedback, don't give your talk to somebody who knows you. They'll say, oh, it's wonderful, it's great, it's amazing, it's, you did a great job, and that's it. And you won't really be helped. But if we send it to somebody who doesn't know us, we will suddenly, um, we will suddenly maybe get feedback we should have gotten years ago. In uh, 10 Minutes with Jesus, this, this podcast that... You know, we, we also have to get feedback, and and um, sometimes we are we have to get negative feedback. Your voice was too low, or it was too droning, or too long, or what have you, right? And the coordinator that takes care of all this is very clear. Uh, you didn't mention Jesus. You didn't. You know, they're usually gentle things, and the feedback is also public, so that so that others also see the feedback. You know. Uh, your submission was a bit late this time, please put it in earlier. Um, you didn't mention this or that. But always when they're public, they're very, they're very, uh, let's say, tame. But he also does personal, personal feedback, you know, and said, look, you should redo this and whatever, for whatever it is. And it's very good to, to get that feedback because, you know, you think you've, you've scored a hit, you know, if somebody says, oh, you know, your voice sounded like blah, 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 and he'll give you... The feedback you need to be, ultimately to be better. But it's not so much that we need to make the perfect podcast, the perfect this. It's that we, we need to learn the art of accepting criticism or, or just, well, you know, feedback. And for us, the directors should really be able to say anything to us. I mean, they should be able to say, you stop doing that, you do that, you do, you know, this is, this is not good. In the same way, in the spiritual direction, we have to let ourselves be guided. And we will let ourselves be guided if, if we embrace that virtue of humility. We can't find ourselves explaining the weak in excruciating detail, uh, every single 
event, every single comment that we may have made. And we, of course, we have to know how to listen without overly imposing our uh, opinions. Like the story of the dinner guests in the gospel, how people were all jockeying for a better position, for places of honor. It was... It was not really about being truly close to the king, but being seen that you are close to him. When the people, there was the king there and everybody was trying to get, but they want, what they wanted is, is, is to, you know, look, I, I want people to see that I'm close to, that I, you know, and uh, they wanted, it's as though they wanted to capture that moment for posterity. So many people, you know, it's like what many people do, they, they take selfies when a, a celebrity comes, right? The, the other day I saw a little video of, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, the Indiana Jones guy. So, you know, he was walking out of a studio or whatever it was, and there was all these fans, and everybody, everybody is just selfieing, 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 you know, and he's there, you know, constantly. Uh, uh, look, I was with, the, whatever his name is, Indiana, Harrison Ford, yeah, there you go. Harrison Ford, the great Harrison Ford, or whoever the actor may be. They do it with the Pope. The Pope has said that he is shocked to see sometimes priests and even bishops sometimes filming themselves during Masses with the Pope, right? And he says they've lost all proportion of the moment. And why would they do that? I mean, you could always get souvenirs of these Masses, but you don't. You know, it's as, as though they want to do it for posterity. And, uh, of course, people were surprised at seeing Jesus speak. This is the son of Joseph, son of a mere carpenter. They'd seen him. There was nothing particularly extraordinary about him, him or his life. Yet he was doing and realizing the redemption in Joseph's workshop. And nobody knew it. And we see that in, in great artists. Uh, they have a certain discipline. They go to their workshop. They work. They keep at it. And yet, the paintings they produce sometimes are these incredible masterpieces that people will gaze upon literally as though they were relics. And, uh, and uh, nobody really gives importance to the discipline and the care that, that, that the artist does uh, as such making that masterpiece. We have to know our place. And, you know, we have to, to do that. We have to be well, well anchored in divine filiation, in the arms of our, of our loving Father. Perhaps it's, it's apart from asking for humility, right? Accepting humiliations and accepting our own defects, those three things, to be in our place when we say, I have to be in my place is not meant to, it's not a, it's not a word that, or, or a phrase meant to uh, humiliate. It's meant to know our place humbly like children know their place. And children know their place. And uh, I recently read this book by Colleen Carroll Campbell about what she describes as spiritual perfectionism. And she describes it as a form of activism or this micromanaging control mania that some people have and um, 
maybe these people in Nazareth had not been completely informed about the Messiah, that he was there, and they wanted to be involved, they wanted to control all the outcomes, they wanted to know who was coming in and out. And um, and you and I too, when, when we're perhaps absent from the center for a while and there are changes uh, uh, of some kind, uh, you know, um, well, we have to, you know, we have to accept those those things, and even if we are not uh, directly involved. But but uh, Colleen Carable uh, recounts that one of her fondest memories as a little girl was when her dad would take her to the beach in Florida, and uh, her mother stayed at home. And I think they lived in Boston or someplace like that. And they were they were looking for a home, so they went to Florida. Meantime, her mother stayed at home, and her father took her to the beach covered her entirely as a little tiny toddler, in uh, covered her in sunscreen. And then she would, on her own, go into the waves, where she would be thrown about in a kind of carefree manner. And she would venture out far, farther and farther. One day she really ventured out quite a bit, and her father was off on the beach somewhere and didn't really, you know, wasn't really keeping an eye on her and... Uh, and see, she suddenly got hit by an immense wave, and the wave just took her just up in the air, you could say, and she was tumbling around, uh, not knowing which side is up or down, gasping for air until she finally, you know, sort of was thrown into the, into the, into the throff of the air, and of the, of the water, rather, and she got air, and uh, she sort of came out of the air, you know, gasping for air. And she looked around and she saw her father in the distance and her other sister. Nobody was any wiser that she had had this traumatic tumbling through through the waves. But then she said, this tossing to and fro in the water later became an image of the love of God for me. This tossing, she said, as she threw herself into the ocean of his mercy. It was for her a discovery of the love of God, how he loves her, and she need not fear. A person who strategically sits at the right place, the higher place, next to the king, wants to be, wants to seem in his good graces. That person wants to appear good, not only to the literati, but also to herself or himself. Why? some form of fear, this jockeying to look good, seeking prestige. We want prestige as a sign of success, not really for the apostolic impact that it can have. She says, God doesn't love me only when I'm wearing my good girl dress. He doesn't value me only when I put on my brave face. God loves me always and everywhere. No conditions, no exceptions, no blackout dates. If I believe that, really believe it, I don't need to be a slave to fear, ever, even when I sin. I need to seek forgiveness, but I don't need to keep my distance. Instead, I need to run to God's arms and beg for a dunk in his ocean of mercy. I need to recover the trust of that little girl who felt so fearless 
when being tossed in the waves by her daddy. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, Paul writes, but you received a spirit of adoption through which we cry, Abba, Father. God is my loving Father, my Daddy. That makes me a beloved son of the King, a man born to live free. She, she describes that, that how divine filiation is really a, d- a deep source of that humility. And to be really free does not mean to, to have somehow to ensure that we're always perfect, that we have no scuffs or bruises or weaknesses. You know, Alfonso Ligori, the famous uh, 18th century priest, he spent much of his youth in constant fear. He had scruples, he had perfectionism, and this was, of course, the, the driving force of everything. But we know that from the biography of Alfonso Ligori that gradually he replaced that fear and those scruples with a deeper love, a deeper confidence. It was a way for him ultimately to also to grow in humility. He came to see the return of love for love, not this white-knuckling flawlessness of the scrupulous. Scrupulosity is not a fast track to hopeless holiness, but it's a do-it-yourself detour. It's driven by pride and fear. And we have to identify the uh, signs of pride in our life because, and, and the signs of fear too. Well, now these days, as we look at the newborn in a manger, as a as a tangible sign of God's love, as humble, as well as the humble host, locked in the monstrance or locked in the tabernacle, locked in that ciborium. Let's make our visit with that humility because he's waiting for us there with humility. And that is the humility of truth that will bring us closer to him and that will lead us also to that more fundamental knowledge of self that our Blessed Mother will intercede for us to have. Knowledge of self. I know my dominant defect. Do I know it? Will I bring it up during the retreat? If it's a dominant defect, I should bring it up when I when I chat, when I make my resolutions, because I have to cover that dominant defect. And Our Lady certainly will help us. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you all to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.